0: Here we go. Live. No, it's recorded. Trudy Seven Lands. I am Rohatty coming at you for the Faith in the Fresh Vibe podcast, season four, the author edition. Hey, you can support this podcast by throwing your money at it. Um, go and check out Rohatty.com and it will have all the details you need on how you can support the work that I'm doing on Decentering Whiteness and Decolonizing Christianity and the Church and all the different friends and new friends that I have come on the show. Check out that info at Faith in the Fresh Vibe podcast, wherever podcasts are sold. This edition features my friend Charlotte Donlan, She lives in Alabama. I value her voice online. There is a level of vulnerability and honesty that attracts me to voices such as Charlotte's because in that honesty, in that leadership, I think there is a level of integrity. There's a saying that says, don't follow a leader who doesn't walk with a limp. So vulnerability is the currency in our world, I think, right now, one of the currencies. Charlotte has a book that came out recently called On Belonging, and it has a depth of insight on practices of vulnerability, but also her story on belonging and loneliness. The Great Belonging, How Loneliness Leads Us to Each Other, now available wherever books are sold. We talk about this book in part one. Part two, we go even deeper around the narratives of loneliness and her story. We unpack aspects of her story. And I think, depending on where you've been with the struggle with loneliness, and we've all been there, you're going to have some moments here. We might have to pause the podcast and come back to it, because there's just depth and an understanding of the human condition that comes out in both a portrayal of honesty, but but Charlotte's story of vulnerability, and what she's willing to share with us so that we can be vulnerable and honest with our own stories of loneliness, vulnerability, and the chase to belong. Enough from me. Let's jump right in. So I have trouble with white people's names. Charlotte, D-O-N-L-O-N, Donlon? Maybe that's, maybe that's too French.
1: It's Donlon. Close. Donlon. 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 Yeah, it's Irish. Irish. Yeah.
0: Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming.
1: Um, thanks for having me. It's good to be here.
0: We're going to dive into your book here, but it's always important to draw near to the stories of where our visitors, our guests on the podcast are from, what part of the land they are from, uh, what city you live in and who are your people?
1: Um, yeah. So my husband is pretty much a hundred percent Irish. His, um, both of his parents' families came over two or three generations back from Ireland. Um, I have a little bit of Irish in me from my side of, you know, from my parents and ancestors. My um, maiden name is Bird, B Y R D, and all of the birds are very proud of themselves <laughs> so i have done some ancestry.com work you know mm-hmm. going back on both sides of the family my husband's okay. and mine yeah. but um the bird work has already been done because all these birds mm-hmm. are very proud um and uh so it's been interesting just i mean i only started that during the pandemic um, doing this research i guess it was one way i was trying to um keep living <laughs> and learning. And, um, I just got interested in it. And for some reason, I want to say around April of this year. And, um, it was, it was good. It was good to find out. I'm kind of on pause now, but, um, it's interesting to see my husband's, um, the research people have done on his side of the family, because there's a lot more secrets. It seems like, you know, like family secrets and, you know, was oh, this okay. person the father or was that person like the father? And I'm TV sure show. that's in the bird side of the family too, but um, I think the birds are just better at covering that stuff up.
0: Do you have anyone famous? Did you have a, uh, a hard discovery uh, moment?
1: Well, we are related to the um, Colonel William Birds that founded Richmond, Virginia. And there's a, Father and a son, both named. I mean, my dad was William Bird. My brothers, William. There are lots of William Birds. I forget which one, but I mean, they all owned slaves. And one of them, there's like diary entries about how he treat, treated his slaves. And um, that was an interesting aha moment. I mean, a lot of people, mm-hmm. like historians, are aware of this, but reading those entries, I would say I read those entries maybe five or six years ago. Um, and just seeing how awful it was like it was like a normalized awfulness, and he just wrote about it like it was just like you know it was just normal, and it was um, infuriating and shocking. Um, to yeah. see those words. Um, yeah. How did
0: you process them?
1: Well, I. It really helped me. um, I mean, I've always, since I've been a Christian, you know, for 25 years or so, been very much um, struck by corporate sin. Okay. Like, it's Mm. not just an individual thing, it's a corporate thing and their systems and frameworks. And I didn't have the language for like systemic racism five years ago I mean I wish I did but I didn't but that is what I was grappling with and you know how am I connected to that you know that many years ago like you know that some of that blood is in me right (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you know I it kind of made it more um like flesh and bloodish for me, the idea of corporate sin and what I now know as systemic mm. racism and white supremacy—it just made it more real. And um, you know, the idea—part of your story, yeah, part of my story, and like you know—is my DNA. Like, is that some of my DNA? Yeah. Like, not just yeah. my story, story, but like my body and my. And then yeah. the body, you know, I think about the bodies of those who were enslaved by my ancestors and it be- I don't know, I think it became more corporal. Is that the right word? Like bod- bodily? <laughs> yeah.
0: mm. It's That's really curious that you, uh, so I picked up pieces of details, but I'll assume that you... Well, I shouldn't assume because then you kind of had more of a mainline presence in your book, but did you grow up in a, in a church, but in in more of an evangelical kind of space?
1: Um, I actually grew up in the Methodist church, um, mainline, but I was, I was not a believer. I didn't understand the gospel or believe the gospel until I was in college. And at that point, I did join a church that was more evangelical and like you know contemporary worship type thing. That pastor actually preached a lot about grace and it was really good for me to have a um like robust foundation of a theology of grace at that point in my life and you know that has carried on throughout Mm -hmm. the last 20 years and it's still a huge part of who I am and like my theology. Um, but now I'm in the Episcopal church. Um, we've been in the Episcopal church for about four years. We just left our local body, um, you know, a few weeks ago and there's another Episcopal church that I'm kind of, curious about, I mean, I've gone to um, morning prayer there. They do weekday morning prayer, which I love, but it's hard in the middle of a pandemic to really church shop. I mean, you can watch sermons online, which is good. Like in some ways, it's easy to church shop in some ways it's not. And then I start feeling guilty about church shopping. I'm like, you know, what I have all of these options, especially here in Birmingham, there's like churches everywhere. And, um, but but there are very good reasons why we left that other church. And um, I don't know. We stayed in a church. Let me think. We helped plant a church um, starting in 2001. Maybe meetings might have started in the year 2000. But um, the first worship service was in 2001. And um, we were there until... Like we were there about 15 years, and um, leaving, like we should have left sooner. It it was there was a, a whole big story about that. The founding pastor um, had an affair with an elder's wife, and things fell apart. Of course, but we 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 stayed. We're very loyal, and we stayed mm. through the transition and through a lot of other things. And um. By the time we left, I was like, man, we should have done that way sooner. So I don't know. I mean, I could talk about all that forever, but um, so now I wonder, I'm like, well, did we leave too soon, this other church? But I don't think we did. I mean, the problem with Birmingham, Alabama, is that um, if you read Letter from a Birmingham Jail that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote many years ago, Two white pastors in this city, like everything is still the same. So wow. I feel like there's yeah. this oppressive thing in Birmingham specifically. Like, and I'm, it's every, I mean, sure, it's other places too, but I think there is this special kind of brokenness and um, blindness of the churches here.
0: Hmm. So you can feel a certain level of power or a different kind of unique power in your place.
1: Yes. I, I do think there are certain powers and principalities that are at work here <laughs> that, that are yeah. at work other places too, but here in like a unique way. And um, I have a lot of friends who have moved away from Birmingham and they tell me there are other churches like there are there are other ways to do church that yeah. don't yeah. exist here and you know I am generalizing I haven't been to every church in this city um and I don't mean to slam I mean I love Birmingham I, I love this place and I think that's why it's so heartbreaking right because you know why why can't we find a church where we are hearing the gospel and um people who really believe what Jesus said and who he is and who who he came who he came for and who he exists for so yeah it's complicated
0: <laughs> i was going to say isn't that ironic but sometimes that's just um, the reality in your place about how a place saturated with churches would, could potentially be so far away from truth. Of course, whose truth would be the mm-hmm. next question, but but um, I, yeah, I asked that question because it struck me as your picture of how you approached sin as being from the get-go, really through a lens of, of or included, the corporate reality of that is certainly something that's counter-cultural to prevailing uh, trends in in uh, the Protestant traditions, especially in, in North America, that tends to individualize all those things and internalize.
1: Well, and I do have individual sense, too. <laughs>
0: yeah, okay, I will say yeah. That yeah okay. In case anyone's honesty. wondering, I do <laughs> Let's talk about your place just a little bit. um This podcast is lots of folks listen to it from across the continent, but it also is rooted in a Canadian context. Canada has this weird fascination with, um, America. We get every American thing pretty much, um, all your TV shows and very much shaped by the same cultural aspects. So the, the, for example, the fear and the, um, yeah, the the use of fear to set policy and hope is something that's very much akin and happening in our context, especially in my province. I live in the Texas of the north. <laughs> Alberta is, uh, or maybe it's the Alabama of the north. Um, very conservative, and part of the realities of that is it's had the worst now just now response to COVID trying to open the door to those individual liberties It's more libertarian in that sense, uh, paint us just, uh, again, broad strokes, but a picture of your place, of your city, uh, and, and what the reality is. You gave us a picture a little bit of the church reality and also the racialized reality of what is, what, the feeling of oppression that is still lingering. Uh, what is the current reality on top of that? And, and the most acute piece, of course, being uh, the pandemic in your midst.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's see. So I live in um, Birmingham, Alabama. I'm actually right now living in a suburb of Birmingham, right next, like right on the border of the city of Birmingham. My husband and I moved to the city from this suburb, um, when we had been married about five years. And we lived in the city of Birmingham for about 13 years. And then we came back to this suburb. My daughter has mild autism and we needed a school system that had more services. Um, And the public schools here are really great. And uh, this particular suburb is more diverse than say some of the other suburbs all of that to say, it's very different living in the city of Birmingham and living mm-hmm. outside of the city of Birmingham. <laughs> um, sure, yeah. And so, but within our County, Jefferson County um, we are a blue kind of dot amidst this red state and mm-hmm. by blue, mm-hmm. I mean, barely okay. blue, like maybe 55 to 60% voted for Hillary Clinton, and I think around that same percentage of this county voted for, for Biden. But with that, there are, you know, plenty of people who would be at home in Alberta, it sounds like, and um, it's, it's hard, because there are also some amazing people here, and then I get stuck with some, like, the people who I disagree with politically and whatever, like, I don't want to demonize all of these people, but at the same time, I don't understand. Like I, I have tried for four years to understand how Trump got elected and I can't, can't except from what you just said about this fear. Um, I mean, I have, all, you know, we, there are all kinds of ideas about that and, you know, white people afraid of losing power and influence and, um, using fear to convince people that the crazy libs are going to take away their guns and everything. And I, I don't understand how Christians, okay. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. look at the racism piece and the white supremacy and all of that and still vote for him. Like that is like, the that's where I stop. I'm like, this exists, right? <laughs> So I'm not going to vote for him. And I knew that from the beginning. And when he was elected and I realized that, you know, 81% of white evangelicals voted for him, I, w- I felt betrayed by the church because I had been taught all of these things about moral integrity and, you know, yeah, the image yeah. of God and how we're all created in the image of God. And, and I'm like, you What? You know, how can this many people vote for him? So I'm surrounded by people who vote for him, who still go to church and have different ideas of what it looks like to live in light of the gospel and to notice God's presence in their lives and in the world around them and in the people around them. And I've had a lot of anger and um, I think, you know, legitimate anger about that. But I don't – I'm still grappling with how to exist in that. And at the same time, I'm like, hmm. how did I simmer in these waters and not end up like that? Like, how? Hmm. So, yeah. I don't know. It's complicated. I said that earlier about something else. But um, right now, people aren't wearing masks as much as they should. Kids at my, at my kids' high school are getting COVID and people are being – contact trace. So if you are within a student who gets it for 15 minutes, you have to go home for 12 days or whatever. And I don't understand why people aren't more concerned about the common good. Like that's probably what it all boils down to um, with regard to the pandemic. It's just not that tricky to me. It's, (laughs) and I don't, I don't understand why it's hard to wear a mask or You know, why people feel threatened, you know, that their individual rights are being taken away. And I don't know how much of that is, you know, media and social media and certain networks that and certain publications that don't publish things that are true. And but but I also think it's just exposing things that were already there. Oh, for so, sure. for so sure. Trump getting elected exposed to things that were already there. I didn't see them. I should have listened to my to my black friends more. And, you know, I mm. should have paid more attention. And I should not have been as shocked in 2016 as I was. Um, I should not be as shocked at the response to the pandemic as I am. But at the same time, I think being shocked is like that thing inside of me that wants justice. And that wants goodness and that wants all of us to flourish. So I don't know yeah. if I don't ever want to be not shocked. And I hope I just said that sentence right. But but at the same time, it's exhausting, right? <laughs> and there are other people here in my community, in my city, in this area that, that agree with a lot of what I just said. A lot of people in the church who agree with that. I would say most of the churches here are like majority people who voted for Trump. And I don't think I've heard any pastor from the left, the right, the top, the bottom, the middle, like call any of it out in a way that emphasizes confession and repentance. like. Hmm. I mentioned my robust theology yeah. of grace, right? So if, yeah. if we yeah. believe the gospel, we receive grace to be able to confess and repent, right? And, and say, okay, I have been um, a part of this framework of white supremacy. I have oppressed other people and I want to confess that sin and I want to turn from it and do things in a different way now. And and that's corporate and that's individual. And I don't hear any pastors anywhere saying any of that.
0: Why do you think that is? I I mean, I have a hunch. I mean, I have,
1: I think one reason is because they, you know, their tithes come from people and members who don't want to hear that. Um,
0: They
1: don't want to make certain people mad. They, um, but I guess they're not worried about me being mad. They sanitize the gospel. And I I think they're in the South. Okay. In, in Alabama, there's, you know, we're supposed to be kind, right. Or nice is probably a better word because if we're nice about our faith, then people will um, be attracted to it and they'll become Christians and, it's just not true. Like if if you're nice while dismissing the reality of the world around you, like no one, no one is gonna be attracted to that, in my opinion. Um, so I don't know. I mean, what do you think it is?
0: Um, I was just thinking as you said, nice. Nice is just a guise to keep things the same. Yep. Uh wh- yeah, wh- I I think when as you were sharing that story to work backwards we don't see it because or in the white um Protestant white Catholic traditions you don't see it because they've never been taught how. Mm. And there's never been a reason to repent corporately especially when the world matches your gaze you assume that everything's operating just fine and so as you crumble that world that you realize that the your perceptions are are wrong you just have n- have no capacity have no training have no memory yeah. of what it means or looks like to repent corporately and and i think that goes to works against the fundamental, and Canada's the same, uh, piece of American culture surrounding individualism. Mm-hmm. So why are more Christians in the South, anti-Christians really, why aren't they more interested in the flourishing of all people? And I think it's because we don't care about all people, we care about ourselves. Right. And it's that the, you use another word, the common good. Like, why wouldn't more people care about the common good? That's because everything is rooted in, in me, in the individual, uh, manifest destiny. What's the other one? The American dream. The American dream is rooted in how far the self can go. Just, just hard work. Mm-hmm. And you too can make it. and, and just the roots of all the systems capitalism for example you just you you race to the bottom to produce as much as you can under the assumption the assumption of capitalism is that all goods and services are scarce rather than a picture that god provides abundance
1: right
0: and so i think culturally it pushes and the gospel should against our fundamental assumptions of who we are. So it's a question of identity. Mm -hmm. That's not just a white Christian problem. I think that that stretches beyond, Um, but it's certainly rooted in the primary narratives in our countries, of which the voting, so in your case, Trump, and, and still, I looked at this yesterday, I don't remember the context, but so Biden winds up with the most votes ever with 81 million or something Mm -hmm. like that. But Trump, Mm -hmm. if there was no Biden vote there, Trump would have had the most votes ever (laughs) at something like 70 something million, I think. Um, And and it's just like, it's still. So there's a slow shift. I I firmly believe that. Um, But... When you challenge identity and white identity, um, that where there's nothing else, like you run out of things to cling to, and that's why so many cling to their let's say guns or cling to their individual liberties being one or their individual liberty to worship, which is our problem here, and and it's very rare, um, in comparison. So we don't have the gun problem necessarily, but we have the anti-maskers. Mm-hmm and the churches who insist on gathering. Um, Again, very small minority, but it's a revelation of this undercurrent of where your identity is rooted. And uh, yeah, I echo. That makes me mad.
1: Well, it makes me mad too, especially because it's like I really believe what these people were preaching to me right like i do believe that my theology and who i am today has been formed by the teaching and preaching you know in part by the teaching and preaching i've heard and learned and i'm like why y'all aren't y'all aren't believing what you preached to me or or it's not as important as you made it seem or Like there's a disconnect, you know, and it makes me feel very isolated from the church. You know, I think a lot of people feel very isolated from the church because of this stuff. And we, we don't really know what to do with it. You know, um, like I want to be in a church. I really do. But I look at the whole thing and I'm like, why do I want to be a part of this? And, you know, you mentioned identity, you know, it's not just the white individual identity. It's our white church's identity. And I I need to learn more about this. And I have some books on my list to read about it. But like the idea that the white American church is rooted in white supremacy and um, how can we be as a church something we've never been before, which is what I think you were touching on just a bit ago.
0: And I'm skeptical that it can shift, but I don't have God-sized vision, perhaps. That's why. But uh, the witness of the church, the first go-around with Trump, uh, even prior to that, (laughs) it's just slowly been eroding, the mainstream witness of the church. In in America, the the conservative branch is is far more powerful. The religious conservative branch is far more powerful uh, than in Canada. Um, But it's still a little bit vocal, uh, so th- these are these are factors that have reared itself over and over again, and I think it's losing, uh, both demographically, just in a normal shift, but also the witness. Uh, more and more people are realizing, and more and more Christians too, so inside and outside of the church, that this church is not standing for the things it should. Like there's enough nascent understanding. Uh, in, in, in popular culture that knows that, in the very least, the church is not supposed to be about these things. In the very least, right? Outsiders even know that. And so I think it is the... the. And this has been going on since the boomers, so if you want to track church attendance and the high-water mark of church attendance being in the 50s, of which Canada Canadians attend a church more as a percentage of population than Americans, which is weird, only in the fifties, though, at that high, and then ever since then, uh, both countries have been—it's just been falling straight into the pavement. And in Canada, it's like eight to twelve percent, maybe, are evangelical now, and um, people go to monthly services. I have to pull up what that stat is, but it's around that too—about twelve percent, maybe. Um, so it's it's a small amount. And more and more people are just leaving because they feel either isolated or they don't believe in that God anymore. I don't blame them.
1: Same. I mean, I, when I read about the Black Jesus, mm. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that, that that sounds like Jesus to me, right? But, um, and I, you know, I follow a lot of, black theologians and um read black theologians i'm trying to read more um but i you know i've had black friends tell me we don't want you to come into our church Mm. (laughs) and i'm like i get it you know you want a space (laughs) where white people aren't coming up in there um but what what I think we can receive from the black church is um, a theological perspective that gives us uh, a broader view of the gospel that's rooted in the truth. So will white people listen to that? I mean, I think, like you said, I think more people are, um, And I even think more people are since George Floyd was killed. Like I do know people who have been transformed since then um, because of the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests and seeing um, things that have been hidden from some of us um, and hearing things that have been hidden from some of us. So, I mean, I think there are reasons to hope, but it's, it's just the brokenness of the current moment is so big. Like it, it's very overwhelming to me.
0: I have a sense of the same hope that that you, uh, or share, with, that you have, but I think it comes in a different package now, as there as there's an iteration of a new imagination of what both this faith and this church can look like. Um, it's going to take some work. It's going to take some aspects of... of Returning to th- your words of of common good and and the flourishment of my myself my my community, but my neighbor the other as well, mm-hmm. and a sense of of just a vulnerability and a humanness to it all that kind of segues us neatly into your book, your book. Uh, the great belonging uh, came out this year. Uh, when when did it come out in the fall twenty twenty.
1: Yes, November tenth, twenty twenty. Just yeah. one week after the election. Okay,
0: was, we we're dating yeah, this. This will timing. come out a couple of months after. But um, so that's brand new. And I kind of saw your postings along the way at, leading up into the release of, of The Great Belonging, How Loneliness Leads Us to Each Other. The first thing that struck me about this book as I, as I was going through it was uh, there is a level, a picture of vulnerability here, of, of refreshing honesty, with your words, that is lacking in so much of, of um, contemporary Christian literature. So thank you for opening your heart um, and letting us in, even if it was just a little glimpse, vignettes, as they were.
1: Well, um thank you for reading and receiving my vulnerability.
0: Um, let's talk. Let's talk about yeah. this book. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about this book because um, it, it's close to something that's going to come out uh, from me, at least along the sense of belonging. I don't dive, however, into the, the aspects of loneliness, and that's a space where I don't think I've read very much of anything around loneliness, maybe dabbled pieces of it in spiritual formation But this is certainly a topic that is not widely written about. And I'm willing to bet it's because of the fear attached to it. I love your opening line. And this is, I don't know, this is like an author geek thing that the intro and that chapter one was like, whoa, oh my. If this is where the rest of this book is going, then, then you're speaking my language. Your opening line in the intro in chapter one if loneliness were placed on one side of a scale and belonging on the other, we might discover they carry the same weight. And in that, just line one, when I read that, there was a moment of trepidation because if that's true, oh, no, there's a little bit of fear <laughs> that kind of crept in. It's like, they're the same? Oh, and and that was just a pause, and I left it at that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if we want to belong, you know, the equal and opposite truth to that, if loneliness is the opposite of belonging, is that we're also lonely.
0: It seems as though this is a curation or of your collection of vignettes on loneliness.
1: Um, I think so. Um, the way I usually describe it is I explore various angles of loneliness and belonging in this book. And I think it came, I think this book, exists the way it exists because I knew I couldn't solve the problem of loneliness and I knew there was no like 10 steps to not be lonely anymore. Um, so my approach with all of my writing and just about everything I do is to inhabit a posture of curiosity. And I became very curious about my loneliness, about others' loneliness. And, um, the writing process just kind of takes me in different directions as a question comes up or as I read something. And um, these are the chapters that made the final cut. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I wrote three or four books and then this is the one that got published.
0: (laughs) So you have a part two, Waiting in the Wings.
1: Uh, no, <laughs> some of those things got thrown away because they needed to get thrown. Away. But I do, I think I have more podcast episodes waiting oh, okay. in the wings, possibly. Yeah.
0: I think that, uh, you could, oh, I wonder, are you the, the Brenny Bound of, of loneliness? You can take that. <laughs> yeah. Coin that. That would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> loneliness is almost taboo culturally. I think, what did Brandi Brown, what was her thing? Uh, vulnerability, I think, to, to mm-hmm. characterize. Um, loneliness is something that we don't really like to talk about. Why is that?
1: Um, I think we are ashamed of it, mm. right? And especially as Christians, um we feel like there's something wrong with us. You know, it's evidence that I don't have enough friends or I don't have the right kind of relationships or I'm not as close to God as I should be, or, um, you know, there's something wrong with me. I I can't connect to people. Or, I mean, I think there's all kinds of things people could say it's evidence of. And I disagree with all of that. I mean, some of that may be true for some people, but I, it's pretty clear based on my own experiences and people I've talked to about loneliness is that people with all kinds of great friendships and partnerships and, you know, intimacy with God still can struggle with loneliness and there, you know, there are different kinds of loneliness and we experience it in different ways based on our season of life or our circumstances. So it's this, I think we feel shame and then I think we're afraid of it because it's not in a box, right? <laughs> if, if things aren't in boxes, we, we might never have answers for them. And I think we all like to have answers for things. I have moved away from that because that's the only way I can exist. And I'm more comfortable not having answers or letting questions um, result in More questions. So when people slow down and look at their own loneliness, it would take, it will take them into different directions about all different kinds of things. And I don't know if a lot of people really want to go there, but what I've discovered in writing and reading and speaking about loneliness is the more I am open about it and the more I voice you know, my experiences with loneliness, the less power it has over me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's connected. Actually, Brene Brown talks about that with shame. you know, when we bring it out into the open, it kind of dissipates. And we discover that we're not as alone as we thought we were mm-hmm. because other people struggle yeah. with loneliness too. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, that means we're not as isolated and as different as we think we are.
0: I think we'll come back to that piece of isolation, because that's very acute right now in our world of pandemic, mm-hmm. of, of the feelings that you have in isolation. Um, I don't know if they've canceled Christmas by you, but they just did that yesterday here. Um, mm-hmm. You're not alone in that struggle, the feelings that you're feeling. You're not alone in those feelings. Other people, we're all being confronted with the still voice in our minds and in our hearts. And it's really calling us to that falsehood of we're not enough.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You you just gave the example of, what was the word? We like to put it in a box, was it? It's almost because mm-hmm. we, do you think it's because we want to find a formula to fix I know that's kind of where i go. Something's wrong. Now I have to fix it.
1: I mean, I would say most of the, at least white American church, that's the approach. And I think people who aren't Christians, I think it's, you know, this human thing to want to fix the problems and um, make everything better and be comfortable and uh, make all of the bad stuff go away or all of the hard stuff, all of the suffering go away.
0: But I mean, your premise here, isn't it? You're rooting in the notion loneliness is not a problem.
1: I would say loneliness doesn't have to be a problem. It's not always a problem. Mm -hmm. I do think loneliness can be a problem and it can be a sign that some things are wrong and, you know, you might need to think about Mm I mean, it can't, you know, if you're lonely in your marriage, which I experienced loneliness and belonging in my marriage, but certain types of loneliness in your marriage or certain circumstances around that might mean that like you need therapy and you need to maybe, you know, if it's an abusive marriage and you feel alone because you're being abused, maybe you need to leave your marriage. Um, So I, I loneliness because it's not in a box, like, it, and it's connected to so many different, um, aspects of life. I, I can't put parameters around it and say, loneliness is not a problem or loneliness is a problem. Like, I don't mean to escape, <laughs> a, a definition. I just, uh, there are so many definitions of loneliness out there. Um, and there's a lot of mystery around it. And I mean, I think that's part of it, too. A lot of us don't like mystery. Oh,
0: I like that. I like that word. That's a, Hang on to that. There's a tweet for you. Mystery. That's so good. And perhaps it's a matter of that we each have our own experience and encounter with loneliness in a unique way.
1: Yeah, And I think, I mean, I think the same is true for belonging, right? Mm. I think there's mystery in belonging. There are some things that make me feel belong, that make me feel like I belong to myself or others and God that I can't explain.
0: I love that. You know,
1: like a taste of, you know, a meal with someone and I take a bite and it sparks a memory of belonging. And I may not even know why, you know, maybe it was a meal I had 15 years ago. You know, I mean, if I want to get really woo-woo on you, maybe it was a meal my mom had 15 years ago um, or had when I was she was pregnant with me. I don't know. Like, I do think there are ways we're connected and ways that we belong that aren't explainable easily or at all.
0: I'll have to sit with your the mystery there is mystery and loneliness and mystery and blogging you should write a book on that
1: you know i'm just i'm like i wish i had a chapter on that <laughs> <laughs> you should write a chapter about it
0: i think part of why people don't write on loneliness or mystery is that it will it will force you to confront your own stories on those mm. and and who wants to do that That's it. Part 1 was Charlotte Donlin. She is coming at us from her home in Birmingham, Alabama. Just finished reading one of Dr. King's book about his time there. 60 years ago, hey? There's a lot of history in that space and place for us to learn from and so much to learn from Charlotte. I really value her vulnerability and her story. There is depth and wisdom in both. Pick up her book. Find her on Twitter as well. You can find Charlotte at uh, Twitter and Instagram. Charlotte, just her name, Donlin at Charlotte Donlan. Part two is coming up right now. Don't miss it because we go even deeper. We start talking about the intricacies and the depth of her narrative, which is really her story that she shares in her book. So that's available right now on Faith in the Fresh Five podcast. Don't miss it.